0: A content warning. There are discussions of mental health, life-threatening situations, kidnapping, and a story with the potential of rape. Just wanted to say that. Overall, it starts off pretty lighthearted, but does start to get a little bit more serious towards the second half. But Josie's story is just something really worth listening to. As you can see, I've rebranded. We'll be discussing that in a future episode. Just wanted to acknowledge it. Josie's story is fantasy. If the rights get picked up someday, I wouldn't be surprised. Think of, on a daily basis, having to, in order to save the turtles and find eggs to hide from poachers with guns. You would have to walk six miles in the dark, four hours away from the nearest hospital, in the middle of the jungle, fight stray dogs, swim in crocodile-infested rivers, with them fucking looking at you. Bugs. Everything that could kill you. And doing that on a nightly basis, alone, without food, for months. It's exactly what her story is. And I can't believe it's real. And, well, what am I doing talking about it? Let's go and get into it. Hey, what's up, guys? Uh, really happy to see you guys again. Welcome to the Gianna Ganel Show. I'm currently here with Josie. And hey, Josie, hi. hey, yeah. So <laughs> you're a fourth year student at Northeastern, right?
1: Yes, sir. Graduating in May. Just hey. a little bit over a month left of actual classes.
0: Wow. Lucky you. Lucky you. Well, uh, another few what weeks of classes and then on to working where
1: hopefully Miami hopefully Miami. Miami. we're still in the process of job interviews and making decisions uh but it's looking like Miami somewhere in Florida or Cape Cod at the moment Mm -hmm.
0: and what industry are you looking at right now and what's your major actually
1: Yeah, I'm marine biology. I have a minor in environmental policy as well. I really want to do field work, so actual data gathering out in the fields with marine megafauna. Um, My passion is marine mammals, so whales and dolphins. But the Miami job is uh, sea turtle nesting, which is ironic because that's what I'm here to talk about my experience with as well.
0: Wow. Okay. really smart. What is fauna for those of us who don't know?
1: (laughs) Fauna, uh, (laughs) animals. It, animals
0: i mean
1: animals yeah plants count as fauna as well
0: okay okay well i mean that that sounds really interesting i'm i'm guessing that you've kind of had to go out in the field to all of these places to go and you know explore these megafauna
1: oh yeah i did uh i did a brief co-op about a month and a half in uh, in Costa Rica Mm-hmm. And I also did a co-op for six full months in Sarasota, Florida, seeing dolphins on a boat every day, which was absolutely unbelievable.
0: Wow. That that sounds beautiful. Wow. Um, well, I mean, speaking of that Costa Rica co-op, um, mm-hmm. I mean, that's actually the reason why you're here. Um, so for those of you who, who uh, don't know, Josie and I, I guess we've been, we've kind of done that thing where like we kind of followed each other freshman year and then after eventually <laughs> you know, liking each other's photos and stuff, just kind of met at a party. And all of a sudden, oh my God, dude, bro. It's like, I feel like I, I'm actually seeing you for the first time. And, you know, um, I just saw in her story, she posted about, it had been a two year anniversary since this, you know, the uh, trip she'd had in Costa Rica where she had ended up, you know, starving. And as I talked to her more, just kind of wondering, you know, how this terrible thing in Costa Rica happened, she broke down to me uh exactly what happened and uh how it went down and i just i thought this is an incredible thing not in a necessarily good way but in something that just has to be told and this is something you've never really spoken at length about before right
1: yeah i uh i have been through the ringer completely and uh and broken it down step by step to the people who are closest to me, uh, but never actually talked through it in one sitting, other than to the appropriate professionals. To be honest with you, um, <laughs> yeah, it was my two-year survival anniversary just a few weeks ago. That's what I. That's what I like to refer to it as my survival anniversary.
0: Survival anniversary. Love that. Well, I mean, so I guess we should go in and uh, go and get to know all the details that led up to this. So. You were in Costa Rica, and it was for a month and a half. Well, what even was it, and how would you even end up there?
1: Yeah, so I went through the co-op application process like everybody else. With marine bio co-ops, uh, very rarely are they paid, and if they are, they're usually really crappy. Like, nobody <laughs> wants to do those ones. And what I crappy wanted to how do- so. Crappy like sitting in a cubicle analyzing data all day. Oh, That's so like all you do.
0: So like not actually out in the field, you know, nah, doing the sampling.
1: Not what everybody thinks of as marine bio jobs, right? <laughs> when you think about marine biologists, it's like this cool image comes to everybody's head of you out on a beach or out on a boat or something. And the jobs that are paid at an undergraduate level are not those jobs.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So you... Saw this one in in Costa Rica. Oh, and also, just for people who don't know, the co-op process is something that Northeastern has, which, I mean, is the reason I'm there. They're sort of six-month long-term internships, but are essentially job work. And during our time studying at Northeastern, we'll spend six months on co-op working to get job experience so that when we graduate, we'll have more experience we can leverage to getting a better job. Yeah, but uh, yeah, so to continue, you saw this one. Why did it catch yeah, your so, eye?
1: so I saw this one. Uh, I actually didn't see this posted. What happened was I went to my co-op advisor and was really clear about wanting to do an international co-op. I'd never been abroad. I thought it was a perfect opportunity. I had a friend who had done a shark research co-op in the Bahamas for her first one and graduated at Northeastern for Marine Bio. So I really wanted to do that, right? that just wasn't going to happen. And this other opportunity came up, my co-op advisor told me directly about and said that they were developing it. So I'd be the first student to go. And one other person applied for the term that I applied for and then ended up not choosing to go was just me. What caught my eye about it is that it was direct sea turtle conservation in the jungle, right on the beach of Costa Rica. I thought, you know, here's this amazing opportunity and uh and why not i just wanted to jump in and and make a difference in a big way
0: yeah i mean who doesn't want to just hang out with some sea turtles and then i mean maybe not get paid for it but just hang out with some sea turtles like that sounds so fun
1: yeah fun for anybody you don't have to be a marine biologist to to think that that would be a fun thing to go do
0: yeah yeah okay so you know you would have been the first person in this program and you somehow uh Get it going. So did you talk to anyone who was in Costa Rica setting up this program before you, you know, while you were interviewing?
1: Yes, I did. And this place had a really, really professional looking website. I talked to the executive director at the time. She and I had a phone call uh that was essentially my interview. And she told me on the phone call that she uh she would like me to come. And Uh, Unfortunately, at this point, I also became aware that not only was it unpaid, but I would be paying to be there. I was paying a monthly fee of $1,200 to be there for room and board and food.
0: So you, as an intern, had to pay to have the privilege of being part of this program.
1: Oh yeah. Red flag. Number one. Like, no, so is, so that's common, not common though.
0: Oh, it is common.
1: It's really common. So this is a huge problem in Marine bio internships is a lot of the abroad ones. A lot of the overseas experiences are are selling you basically what you need to become qualified to apply for jobs. So they're saying you can come to our place And pay this fee for room and board because we can't support you. We don't have government money in this country to do what we're doing here. But you'll get all this amazing experience and everybody will want to hire you afterwards.
0: Wow. And even for, I mean, this one was not the most credible, but is this the case for credible organizations too?
1: Uh, no. (laughs) So (laughs) it's common, but... Mm -hmm. In general, it's a red flag. General, and this is not flag. something that anybody told me either, which it should have been. Uh, it's common that you pay a little bit for room and board or that you don't get paid, but they'll uh, they'll accommodate you.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. So red flag number one. Mm-hmm. Uh, so continuing on.
1: So i I chose to go because I got a large scholarship from Northeastern to go. So I got what they call the presidential global scholarship that, uh, that essentially covered three fourths of my cost to be there uh, for, for four months. So what I agreed to was an internship period of January through May. And I was gonna go, be there the whole time, be the only student from Northeastern to be there the whole time. But I was told at the time that other interns from other locations would be coming and going throughout that period, which ended up not being the case. Uh, what happened was volunteers would come for one week, a few days, or two-week periods. And, and those volunteers would not have the same experience that I would have.
0: So you were the only long-term resident yes. in this program. Okay. Um, Which
1: I was directly lied to about. I mean, I was I was told that there would be people there with me the whole time I was oh, there. Oh,
0: so you, you 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 would not have been okay with this? You just learned about this once you got there.
1: Yes, I was actually I was actually absolutely against being the only person to be there the whole duration.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, so so right now we're at the point where you've accepted the co op and you've uh, gotten on the plane and you were sold this story. Of Yes, you would have to pay your way, but it would be majority paid for by Northeastern. So, you know, very good on your end. And you wouldn't be the only one there. And now you're told that you're going to be basically the only person that's going to be there. Can you tell us what is there? Where were you exactly?
1: (laughs) I was on the Pacific side of Costa Rica, there are two peninsulas. The upper one is called the Nicoya Peninsula, and the lower one is called the Osa Peninsula. I was on the Pacific-most side of the Nicoya Peninsula uh, in a place that doesn't have a town name. It was a structure, essentially, in the middle of the jungle. About a The, the bungalow I stayed in was about a 10, 15-minute walk to the beach through some jungle paths, And the closest town was an hour drive by beach at low tide called Mansonil. And Mm -hmm. that's three hours when it's high tide and you've got to drive the roads through the jungle, which are essentially impassable. Uh, And that town also isn't technically really a town because it doesn't have a hospital. So the closest town of the hospital is two hours by beach and much, much longer through the jungle. It was also really close to this, or not really close, but the another closer establishment inland was um, a town called Kawano. C-O-B-A-N-O.
0: So what I'm hearing basically is you are in the most obscure isolated <laughs> jungle you possibly can be in.
1: Yeah. I somehow found myself, you know, driving further and further and further and further away from any sort of civilization and just kind of was sinking in like what was really happening to me on the drive there.
0: Now, did you know how far into nature this would be like, Oh yeah. So you're going to be two hours away from the nearest hospital by car and it's going to be isolated and jungly. And did you have electricity, plumbing, any of that?
1: Yes. To both electricity and plumbing. Uh, Though barely. And <laughs> um, I was not, it was not directly spelled out to me how far this was from things. It was, you know, it was pitched to me that it was pretty remote. But I, I grew up in South Dakota, right? So South Dakota is pretty remote. That's that's what I think of as pretty remote. Like I grew up, you know, a solid 45 minute drive from town, which is fine. Jesus and the roads Christ. are fine. But I, it's still, I, just... I was like, I'm <laughs> used to isolation.
0: I, I, I thought, I mean, <laughs> I, I don't know how you could do that, that, I mean, to me, that sounds insane. Some, I mean, someone who grew up in a pretty suburban, you know, always near a city my whole life. I just, I can't imagine doing that. Okay. But you're, so you're here and i here and okay. So take us through a day in the life. What's happening. How are you feeling? All right.
1: So at a time that at the time that I arrived, uh, there was this group of volunteers who had been there. A few days, or either that, or they arrived a few days after I did. But they, my my arrival date was really close to this group of volunteers that was there for two weeks, and their volunteer cycle was there for two weeks, off for two weeks, there for two weeks again. So I got a little close to them in those two weeks. A day in the life uh, when I first arrived was for everybody work during the day on maintaining the different buildings that were on there, doing other sustainability conservation-y type things we were told that like you know in the end like planting plants right like we planted a bunch
0: of trees were they like that special plants we didn't plants need to plant no we didn't need to plant them
1: <laughs> no it's it was just kind of, it was supposed to be a feel good thing right you feel like you're doing all this stuff you're planting all these plants during the day you're you know you're you're on the beach, maintaining the hatchery building for the turtle stuff. And then what happens is at night
0: hatchery building. you Yeah.
1: So at night I'll, I'll get into the workings of what the, they were doing with sea turtles. You would walk uh, the length of this beach, which was six miles. So you'd walk at six miles and walk at six miles back uh, twice a night. And you would do this in like you know however long it took you which would depend on if you found turtle nests on that patrol or not and then sleep for a little bit and then get up and do it again at least i did because i was supposed to be on every patrol because i was told on my arrival that i was now the turtle expert i was going to be leading people and this had been pitched to me as i'm going to be learning right this is my first co-op this is my first internship ever i'm not an expert on anything you know i know a lot. But obviously Mm -hmm. I'm not showing up with the idea that I'm going to be the person who knows the most about turtles here because I'm supposed to be learning about turtles, right? Not Mm -hmm. how it was.
0: Not how it worked I
1: was the one teaching people about turtles. And I knew like the least that I could have possibly known about turtles going into this in terms of what I should have known.
0: And they didn't kind of brief you on what you'd have to tell them. They were like, here's a turtle, talk about it.
1: They were like, you'll be leading these volunteers on turtle patrols. And now that you're here, the other person who was doing that is going to go on vacation. And, sh- and I didn't meet her for the
0: first two weeks. <laughs> wow.
1: And I was like, oh, I'm just, okay. You know. And, they, and then when I was kind of like, oh, that's not what I thought I'd be doing. They were like, well, we, we hired you as the person to be here for the turtles. And I'm like, okay, but also I'm not getting paid. So you didn't hire me. I'm just here to do this thing, and you know, I'm I'm young at this point. I'm 19, so I'm kind of like, oh, like I don't really know what validity I have to be upset in this situation. Mm-hmm. I'm not mm-hmm. trying to make a problem for anybody. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to be a good worker. I'll just do it, and so I learned a lot about turtles, like immediately.
0: Mm. Now, how um, do you learn? When is there internet? Did you, was it books? No. <laughs> <laughs> like
1: there were there were a few books there, uh, and I had to my credit saved on like downloaded onto my computer, a lot of like Marine turtle textbooks wow. that I had bought before I left. So thank God I had those. Cause I don't know what, a, I don't know what I would have told them I would have had to make shit up. Like that's <laughs> where we were at. <laughs> um, so, ah. sea turtle patrols, you're patrolling twice a night. You're walking all this way. There's obviously a lot of obstacles during that walk, which we can get into later. But then, what you do is if you find a sea turtle nest, you, which you locate because you can see where the mother turtle crawled up and crawled back to the ocean. Mm-hmm. If you find a nest, you dig down, you collect the eggs, physically take the eggs out of the nest, and then you go back to this enclosure that's locked one padlock that doesn't do anything essentially because the fence is climbable and not barbed wire and not electric uh and you're in the hatchery then which is this enclosed piece of sand where you dig down and make a nest and put the eggs that you collected into that nest and the point of all of this is to decrease poaching and decrease the amount of eggs that natural predators eat in order to you know hopefully conserve sea turtles by putting more sea turtle hatchlings into the water with the hopes that more of them survive to adulthood. So that's like what it's supposed to do, right? What the mm-hmm. organization ideally in operation does. But it doesn't do that at all. Really? Yeah. So when you if if there was a scientist there None of it would have operated in the way that it did. The reality was nobody there was qualified to do anything that anyone was doing there. No one knew how to take adequate data. Nobody knew how to set up an experiment even. I mean, Mm -hmm. we're talking like physical science stuff that you learn right away. And also some common sense. Like, hmm, yeah, we have this problem with poaching and everything. Maybe like a better method for anti-poaching would be to cover up the mother sea turtle's tracks and cover up where she laid the nest, like, like make it look like not a nest is there Mm -hmm. so that you don't have to immediately dig up this vulnerable egg situation and get all our bacteria, our human bacteria, viruses, expose them essentially to the elements for a little bit and fuck up the inside of the nest, which is made specifically by the mother to incubate them at a certain temperature. So we can't replicate that. And okay. when I say "we," I mean I can't replicate that. Nobody taught me how to dig a nest. Mm-hmm. Nobody told me I would be doing any of this, mm-hmm. and this is not something that's in those turtle textbooks because this is not a standard scientific practice
0: mm-hmm. now, why is it a bad thing that the human bacteria gets on these eggs does it um, Does it kill the turtles? Does it uh make them kind of, does it confuse them like
1: yeah, it can just give the turtles diseases or infections or basically decrease their chances of survival in the natural world when they hatch.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wow, so what I'm hearing now is this is one of your responsibilities on top of your busy work responsibilities of planting useless trees. <laughs> God, um, amen. <laughs>
1: okay, so we made mud balls. I mean, we made mud we balls. did stupid shit during the day. Like we'd plant trees We'd make these balls of mud that were that supposedly had microbes in them that would help take chemicals out of the polluted rivers that were there. And I looked it up afterwards, and it didn't do shit. All of that was pseudoscience.
0: Okay, so how much of this was pseudoscience? How much? How much of this was just busy work? Like did they just busy work was during way.
1: the day. Busy work busy was, during, work the was during the day. Pseudoscience mm-hmm. was at night.
0: Pseudoscience. Okay, <laughs> okay so. um so how long do you do this for?
1: I mean, I continued doing everything for the entire month and a half that I was there, okay. which is unbelievable and shocking. And one of the one of the results of everything else that was happening is I had to convince myself that what I was doing was actually making a difference to survive. Because if I hadn't, I would have. I would have died or become more vulnerable much earlier on because what I what I didn't explain is you know I I think I alluded to there being these obstacles on the turtle patrols and when I talk about obstacles I'm talking about there was poaching but poaching in the sense of we're out walking the beach at night looking for these turtle nests so are poachers but they are not walking they're on motorcycles and they have guns on the weekends because they can get about $2 per egg for Costa Rican um, egg markets, like turtle eggs. It's mm. this—it's a cultural thing, but it's also kind of a black market tourist thing. It's very legal. And there's this full underground, we're talking, everybody kind of thinks of the shark fin soup thing mm. as the marine bio yeah. black market. This is very similar deal. It's really high stakes. And a lot of the time people who are poaching are also drug running. It was a really common area for drug running. Very easy to land a plane undetected and have it take off again on mm-hmm. this side. There's no police presence at all. Mm-hmm. I I saw a policeman once the whole time I was there and people were actively afraid of him. He was like a corrupt officer who was there. And I was told to not, you know, talk to him and to hide from him as well if I saw him.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. So, I mean, were you armed or were you, was no. there anything you could have to defend yourself? Did anyone have? I No. No,
1: nothing. I had no no knife even. I had no pepper spray. I had had nothing. And Uh, another obstacle is there were these rabid dogs at the end of the path that you would have to walk to get onto the beach to do turtle patrols. I did end up arming myself against them with a stick. So I had this long stick and you'd get to the part of the road where you know that they were going to be there, but it was always dark. And we had headlamps that didn't really work. So you couldn't see more than like a foot in front of you, max. And the dogs would be quiet, absolutely quiet until they were in your light. So they'd run up to you as close as they could, like run at you from the dark and then only start barking and snarling and like trying to bite at you once they were in the light. And so I carried her on the stick and I would sweep it like as if it was a metal detector kind of thing in front of my legs in like an arc. Yeah. Once I would get to that point in the road uh, so that it would keep them away from my legs because they did actually tear off a volunteer's jacket and rip it up um, and almost got his leg when he was on one turtle patrol. Oh,
0: my God. So. okay, so between the poachers with guns and between the obstacles, these rabid dogs and your inability to defend yourself because you were given no weaponry whatsoever. Um, How did this feel? And uh, um, when did it, I mean, yeah. How did this feel? And is this when you started to realize like, shit, I'm unsafe. This is, this operation doesn't seem great.
1: For a minute. I think I had a little bit of a hero complex. Like when I, when I first got there, I think that, you know, a lot of people around me told me, I would be like, this is crazy that we're doing this and this is unsafe. And I'd say things like that. And I would be told, you know, it's your first time out of a, out of the country. You haven't experienced anything like this. Safety is just different here. And then I would repeat that to myself. And then I would repeat that safety is just different here. And then I would repeat that to other people. And I, I won't forgive myself for that because other volunteers would come to me and say, I don't feel safe doing this, or this feels unsafe, or I can't believe what's happening. And I would say that to them too, because I was repeating that to myself. Safety uh, is just different here. I felt I felt a lot of fear early on, but it was all rationalized in my mind at the time by really believing that I was physically out here putting my life on the line, making a difference for these turtles, and that was going to do it. I was trying to be this like conservation heroine and you know I wanted I wanted the best for really the world. Uh mm-hmm. but
0: mm-hmm. I mean you know, just <laughs> with you explaining everything, it's it's so easy to get that hero complex. Cause I mean, I have not done anything nearly as badass as that in my <laughs> life, right? But if I if I woke up in the morning, right. Four hours away from any real civilization. Right. There's no Internet. I have no weapons. Right. And I have to go walk six miles and trudge through all these obstacles, these dogs, these poachers with guns. And I'm armed with a fucking stick and I'm out here living life, you know, with whatever food is there. I mean, God, so easy to feel like a badass doing that.
1: Yeah, and I don't even know if I felt like a badass. I think I really wanted to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but I, I definitely felt like, wow, not everybody could do this. And here I am trying to do this, trying to make a difference for the turtles. You know, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. out here putting my life on the line for these turtles. Also, another obstacle that I didn't mention, which is just comical to think back on, is there were these river mouths that you would have on along the six-mile beach walk. There were these points where the river would meet the ocean, right, called the river mouth. And crocodiles lived in those. And we'd have to swim sometimes when the tide wasn't right. So oh we'd be, and God. they'd hunt at night. So literally, I'm swimming across a river mouth with my headlamp that shows me one foot pointed in the direction up the river so that i can see the reflection of their eyes when they're close to me
0: oh my and did you ever see the reflections of their eyes
1: oh yeah we'd see them every night
0: like in the water while you're swimming
1: yeah we're talking like three or four crocodiles every night what the (laughs) it's just comical like these are the things that like and at the point that like, like coming off of this, right, off of the whole experience, that's something that I look back on and I'm like, that's one of the lesser scary things that I faced every night.
0: My God. The dogs
1: were scarier than those.
0: So this is on a nightly or at least every few days basis that you're just going through these absolutely like nightly. I mean, let's, like, yeah, let's call them what they are, life-threatening situations yeah. on a on a nightly basis. And somehow. Very quickly, you just thrust yourself in and you just tell yourself, okay, you know what? Safety is different here. I'm saving the planet. This is necessary. Okay. And so it, it, and so it, it continues like this. Um, so proceeding down after you do this for some time, what else happens?
1: So, you know, it's really easy to look back and be like, wow, why did I stay? like, how did I, how did I end up really here for a month and a half? And it's, it's things like sleep deprivation actually changes the way that your mind works. And if you think about it realistically, I'm working manual labor during the day, right? Doing busy work. Mm -hmm. And then I'm working manual labor at night doing, you know, and in life threatening situations every night. And in that time I'm sleeping in two or three hour chunks, maybe if I'm lucky, sometimes half hour chunks. So I'm sleep deprived. My brain isn't running the same way. I'm not thinking logically. And now I start to become food deprived. So when volunteers weren't there, which they weren't there all the time, I've mentioned volunteers, they would come in in cycles and there would be periods of two days to four days that I would be completely alone. No staff, Mm -hmm. no volunteers. Mm -hmm. And the kitchen building, the kitchen bungalow would be locked. So I would have actually no food during those times. I wouldn't be eating, but I I did still have access to water because my bungalow had drinkable water in the tap. So I was drinking water, but I wasn't eating food. And I just started, I think my body started to degrade so quickly that I went into just full survival mode. And then another reason that I stayed there that I think contributed heavily, way more than I would have anticipated Uh, And was really smart on the organization's part is as soon as I got there, they made me responsible for other people. So I would think to Mm -hmm. myself, even if I can't keep doing it, who else is going to do it?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that alone. Yeah, like you feel like you you have a duty at that point, because I mean, this this tends to happen with with people. It's always um, I mean, a, a very popular thing I've heard is to treat yourself as if you, as if you're treating someone you're responsible for, because it's very easy to let yourself be, oh, I'm nothing, you know, just sort of sacrifice yourself for the help of someone else. And like you said, because you were the only person that was here long-term, you were the only person who had the experience. And so you felt you needed to be there for these volunteers whenever they'd arrive to help them. And for the turtles. And for the turtles. I also was
1: watching, you know, I you know, I was doing anti-poaching, right? But poachers won a lot of the times, like just straight up with you. I didn't have a gun. I didn't have anything. I was on my own a lot of the times. So a lot of the times, a lot of the nights, I'm I'm hiding, right? I'm running because I will, they'll see me walk and find a nest. Or if I find a nest, I'm acting like I didn't find it and walking past it. And then coming back later when I don't see anybody on the beach to try to dig up the, the eggs. But a lot of the times I'm watching poachers carry off nests of eggs. And I'm thinking to myself, each sea turtle nest is about uh, 90 to 112 eggs for the species that were there, which were olive ridleys. And, uh, And I'm thinking, that's $200 they just made. And that's 112 turtles that just didn't make it into the water because I wasn't quick enough. So I'm convincing myself I need to go on all these turtle patrols because nobody else is going to do it. And those turtles are going to die directly if I don't
0: do that. And that's the reason why you were so sleep deprived, because you personally took it as a task on yourself to go out throughout the night and look after these turtles.
1: Yeah, it was, it was proposed to me as that was my job. And I accepted at face value that that was my job.
0: Wow. Okay. So I want to go back to when you said that you started to starve. So you said that volunteers wouldn't really show up within that time so what was the amount of time until sort of civilization or these volunteers would come with new shipments of food
1: it would be so the first group of volunteers let me let me pull out a timeline here Um, they arrived on the 22nd january 22nd i arrived on the 19th Mm -hmm. and then they were there until the 25th and then they were gone and then there was nobody there for two days and new volunteers arrived the night of the 27th -hmm. so already in the first week that i'm there i'm i'm facing about a little over a 24-hour period of no food And then after that, the longest that I was without was five days, which was February 2nd through February 8th in the morning.
0: And when these shipments of food would come in, how much of a supply was actually there?
1: It was enough for the days that those volunteers would be there. And then when they would arrive, they'd realize that they that I wasn't eating and so I would be like included within their food plans for those mm-hmm. times but it there was no extra to bleed over into when they would leave they would show up with enough supplies for the time that they were there
0: and what would you eat was it canned food was it what was it it was
1: rice and beans mainly it
0: Was rice and beans mainly
1: rice and beans plantains uh sometimes if I was lucky they'd bring a bunch of fruit like watermelon and pineapple and Costa Rica is known for amazing fruit. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, some volunteers who were going to be there for a longer period would bring nice fruit. There's one group of volunteers that uh, had been there for a few days, left for a few days and came back. And I had specifically asked for them to bring me chocolate and they did. And then some other girl ate it and didn't realize it was for me. And oh ate it god. all, and didn't leave any for me while I couldn't have one, and that was coming off of three days of not eating anything. Oh my god! And I don't think I've been more angry at anybody in my life. I
0: oh my god! I how'd you not kill her?
1: I think I cried for probably four hours.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's understandable. Not eating three days, and the one thing you look forward to with the chocolate is just eating all. Oh, wow. Okay. So, okay. Wow. So.
1: Yeah, at the end of my time there, a month and a half, I'd lost 28 pounds.
0: Wow. So between the sleepless nights and not being able to eat food. Now, when I'm sure you would ask these people to bring surplus food for you. Why did they never do that?
1: It wasn't the same volunteers coming back. Uh, The time that I asked for chocolate was the only group of volunteers that came back again.
0: Yeah. So they would
1: come, they wouldn't realize, they wouldn't be told that I was there alone, not eating, because that's not something that's attractive to tell incoming volunteers is, oh, we have this one girl on staff and she's just there while everybody else is gone. And all the other staff were locals. So they would go home to their families a few hours away, half an hour away, whatever it was. And nobody looked out for me and i i still won't understand that i think they there was a lot of like fear about making the um making the executive director upset and then i think there was also you know like you in all reality yeah and in all reality the area the area in general costa rica in general extremely poverty stricken it is a third world a third world country hands mm-hmm. down mm-hmm. so i think a lot of it was like they didn't want to have to take responsibility for me, you know. Yeah. They didn't want to have to take me into their homes and feed me.
0: Yeah, and then and you also had guilt yourself, like you being who you are, an American, <laughs> in a country. It's like, I mean, the low the, the people at at the bottom don't really make much. I mean, when you talked about those two dollar eggs, like that's a lot of money. That's a lot of yeah. money, I'm sure, in Costa Rica. And oh I, yeah, and I, yeah, and I'm sure you just it it, it was guilt. Was there Anyone that you could have reached out to, like, you know, to say, hey, you know, I'd like some more, or were you still feeling that I don't want to make a a problem?
1: Oh, I didn't feel I don't want to make a problem, really. It was, you know, I felt that I felt that towards the staff who were locals, Mm -hmm. but I reached out to the executive director a lot. At one point, her sister came to visit, I reached out to her. I reached out to uh, Northeastern once. And said, "I'm hey, I'm here. I'm not eating." Um, she actually, at the time, my my co-op director or the the woman who had recommended the position to me, I reached out to her and I told her I wasn't eating about halfway through my stay. She reached out to the executive director via email and connected us all, all three, and the executive director straight up denied it. did you
0: getting more food.
1: Denied me not eating. She said, "We've never left her alone there. She's eating." you know, it's really hard work. And she just made it sound like I was being a baby about it, essentially.
0: Wow. Wow. Wow.
1: It was unbelievable. I I remember I I didn't even have time or energy or physical strength to fight it at that point. And that was only halfway through. I was just like, okay, I guess I'm being a baby about it.
0: Mm -hmm. You know, I Mm -hmm. don't,
1: I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe this is what it was going to be the whole time And I just misunderstood
0: Wow I'm too nice <laughs> Yeah, I know I mean, that's what I'm hearing It's it's a nice, you know a, a nice girl who had her advantage completely No, who had her niceness completely taken advantage of Okay, so you're saying Right now this brings us to about a, halfway through We're about mm-hmm. uh, About what? Three-fourths of the month in?
1: Mm-hmm. there comes yeah. one night that's a turning point about three-fourths in mm-hmm. um this night i ended up calling my parents after and this was uh the closest death encounter i'd had up until that point uh what happened was doing a turtle patrol on the beach it's me and one of the volunteers who's also um, a young woman. I think she was 18. I was 19 at the time. And one of the locals who was a staff member. And it's not the middle of the night patrol, but it's the late night patrol. So uh, our patrols would be like 8 p.m. to 11 and then like 1 a.m. to 3 a.m. And then sometimes we'd have three patrols and the morning one would be like 3am to 5am there were also it would depend on the tide cycle so they changed times but this was a earlier night one Mm -hmm. and um, walking along the beach we see headlights in the distance and they're moving really quickly and it's clearly a car and two motorcycles by the way that they're driving blasting music it's also a weekend night. The weekend nights were way more dangerous because people would come in from the cities and from San Jose to drug run and poach on the coast and go party and get wild. And uh, Those people were way more dangerous than the local people who were just poaching to put food on the table for their families.
0: Mm-hmm. So,
1: so we are automatically on edge. We get into the, into the palms, but it was clear that they were close enough to, kind of see us the palms probably. so uh, palm the tree line
0: oh tree so line. you know you're
1: walking on the you're walking along the beach and then there's this like a little bit of brush and then there's where the trees kind of tree here and there and then there's a line where basically it's thick jungle
0: mm-hmm.
1: so we get back there uh and the car drives right up to where we entered the trees and stops and like six guys get out of the truck, and the two guys are on motorcycles, listening to uh to this song i don't remember the name of it, but it 's a popular song that people listen to still like it was like and still that song now i can't listen to um, and they're clearly drunk, so drunk, and are like shooting their guns in the air they have not just like handguns they have like a r fifteens mhm. Like shooting these machine guns into the air, we're laying right now on the jungle floor. Shit's moving all around in there, like, you know. There's spiders, there's snakes, oh there's everything, and you're just at this point not worried about that. Like I can't describe to you the amount of bugs that I saw on this trip, and the amount of like wasp stings and this and that that I just got all the time it didn't even matter. I think I got stung by a wasp or a bee every single day that I was there. <laughs> and it just didn't matter. I wouldn't even come up. Um, but, uh, but we're laying there and these guys start to walk into the trees. And usually it, it had always been a kind of like, oh, they just kind of want to scare you off. They don't want the volunteers here. They don't want international people here. They, they just want to be able to do whatever the fuck they want and you know complete their legal activities in peace and this was clearly different it was a feeling of like they're looking for us we're three women two of us are white probably from nicer countries the mm-hmm. girl i was with was german mm-hmm. um and and they have flashlights and they start shining it around into the trees and like mm-hmm. like cooing to us like oh here come here come here it's like señoritas and i'm like fucking stressed out because we didn't cover ourselves with anything we're just laying and and they're like really close to where we're at
0: yeah and they're drunk they have guns and it's six hours away from anything they have a car
1: right and i'm thinking you know and this isn't just it the vibe is different the vibe is like pull you out of the trees and rape you and sell you vibe. That's just the vibe they're putting off.
0: That's, I mean, <clears throat> it's kind of hard to think. Otherwise they saw you from what you could say and they're with their flashlights and machine guns walking around trying to find you three defenseless women.
1: And I didn't even have my dog stick. <laughs> <laughs> I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't even have the one thing. <laughs> Um, Cause I would leave it. I would leave the dog stick at the front of, like, right at the end of the path to the beach, where the you know around where you'd run into the dogs. So then I didn't have to swim with it when we would swim across the rivers. It was. Just, <laughs> it would weigh me down.
0: God so, forbid she doesn't have her dog stick swimming in the God, crocodile river.
1: God forbid, right? So <laughs> I, uh, so I, I covered us with what I could, and uh, and I went back and. <laughs> called my parents and I didn't tell them about that. I honestly didn't really tell them about anything. I didn't know what to say. So I'm, I'm calling my parents. It's like 6 a.m. their time because we got back. I mean, we laid on the floor of that jungle for hours afterwards because who knows, right? They drive off, they get bored, they get drunk, they drive off, they come back to come look for you again. They came back like, and we, we heard them. Yeah, we wow. heard them like an hour later because that's the most money they could make. You know, it's a golden opportunity. And Costa wow. Rica has a history of uh volunteers being kidnapped. You know, a long-standing history. The last one was in 2013 and they found him murdered. He was an international volunteer for sea turtle conservation.
0: Oh, wow.
1: Again, not something I was told.
0: Wow. Yeah. Okay. So,
1: you know, we lay on the we lay on the jungle forever. Luckily, nothing happened. They don't find us. Um, big spiders everywhere. I'm not afraid of I'm not afraid of any bugs anymore, ever. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I call my parents and I'm kind of like, yeah, safety is different here. Even saying that to them, and they're like, how is it? Is it great? Are you enjoying yourself? And my dad will say that he knew immediately that something was very wrong. Uh, And my mom said that she didn't know until she was there. And what happened was they decided on that phone call. So they got off the phone with me and my dad said to my mom, we need, we need to go see her as soon as we can. And they came in like the next week. My dad's a cattle rancher to give a little background. He has never been out of the country with my mom since they like got married. And he's rarely traveled ever since they got married as well, because who can sub for a cattle ranch? You can't take yeah. a week off a of cattle ranching. Yeah. And um and notably he has never planned a trip that they've taken ever. And my mom was like, oh, yeah, he wants to go, blah. Like, it's never going to happen because he'll say he wants to do things. And then he just won't be able to do them and it, and it won't happen and he won't plan it.
0: Wow. You, you're daddy and both. That's crazy. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. He he gets off the phone with me and looks at flights and buys him a flight. And it was wow. like, we're going to see her. Wow. This needs to happen. He, he has the sixth sense about, he calls it the sixth sense about his girls never heard because girls are in trouble whenever my mom has been in a in a like fender bender that was a little serious uh, when I was a kid and I was in a car seat it was a few blocks away from our house in town and he was at home kind of waiting for her to come back from grocery shopping uh, she didn't answer the phone when he called her to see like what was taking so long and he just started walking in a direction and found her so wow. he has this weird sixth sense about it I don't know you know overlap but or coincidence, but he showed up. They showed up uh, a week later, a week after that incident, and uh, and took one look at me, essentially starved, and were like, "You shouldn't be here."
0: Mm-hmm. Took and, a look
1: of where I was,
0: and as well. how how did they get there? Like, did they just kind of charter a taxi and then head to your location?
1: So you you have to fly into the capital, which is San Jose. And then you can fly to the peninsula to this airport called Tambor. And then you take a ferry across uh, from the mainland to Punta Arenas, which is like um, the entrance to the peninsula, I guess. And then from there, charter a taxi from Punta Arenas across the peninsula to the Pacific side to where I was, which they did. Actually, no they rented a car they, they rented, rented a the car. car they rented a car and took the car on the ferry. A lot of the details of this escape me because I really just wasn't you my brain wasn't functioning,
0: yeah, I mean of course, between the starvation, the sleep deprivation and the life threatening uh situations that are just kind of just numbing you i can just Im- I can really just imagine this um it's um I don't want to draw like this specific comparison, but uh, um, I mentioned to you previously about uh, uh, Viktor Frankl in Man's Search for Meaning. Uh, for those of you who don't know, there's, um, I highly recommend this book. He goes over sort of the way that one's psyche develops or deteriorates as they're put in very life-threatening situations. In his case, he was put uh, within a Nazi concentration camp. But a lot of what he mentions happens is exactly as you had gone through. As he was starved, as he'd had as he'd been put in very life threatening situations as you are, and as he was forced to do a lot of things and entrapped with no way to go, you just you just shut down and things that in any normal life would make you feel you know that would shock you or make you wonder what you were doing just kind of vanishes and you don't even realize what you know what the world you're living in is because it's so normal and okay so to bring this to what's happening now, they, after renting the car, getting on this ferry, they drive up to the peninsula and they go and they see you. And what what state are you in at that point? Who's with you? How do you feel? You know, what's your food ration situation?
1: The time that they showed up, there were there was a new staff member who had arrived who had arrived maybe two days prior. And there was a volunteer who had been there for about four days and he was going to supposedly be staying longer and just taking some trips now and then to go visit other parts of Costa Rica. He was also German. Uh, and I had recently had a surfing accident, which I didn't mention. I was another thing that just kept me going, kept me wanting to be there every day was that I would surf. I would surf for hours every day. Only thing that made me happy. Uh, only thing that like was rewarding at all. Mm. At a certain point, I had this big surfing accident where I, uh, I caught my arm. You can't probably can't see, but I have this like longer scar here. Mm. Um, and we, I had to be driven to the hospital for that one because it, it wouldn't close up and it needed a stitch or two. And so I was, uh, I was, a little beaten up in terms of bruised and I had a few stitches in my arm and uh and I was definitely hungry <laughs> <laughs> and um tired. I mean exhausted. There's d- just a the point that you don't even feel the same tired or exhausted anymore. Like now I can say, you know, I just had a long day, I went through all these classes, I'm tired. It was this like soul crushing time ending. Like, I'm not having thoughts anymore. I'm yeah. just watching myself continue to function. I'm existing. not choosing to function anymore. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm completely just existing. Uh, and they show up, and there are these pictures of me showing my dad my dog stick and demonstrating to him how I use it. And in those pictures, you can see my clavicle and every rib down my body.
0: Mm-hmm. They took pictures of you showing them the dog stick.
1: My mom did. Yeah. My mom took a picture of me showing my dad, the dog stick.
0: Do you have uh, any photos of that? I mean, like as you go along, if you're comfortable to share. um,
1: Absolutely. Yeah. The more, the more pictures, I didn't have a mirror when I was there too. So Mm -hmm. I didn't watch myself wasting away Mm -hmm. and didn't see what I looked like until Mm -hmm. they came. Mm -hmm. So then also they, they come And my mom's like, wow, you know, you're so skinny, but she's trying not to freak me out. Uh, And, you know, later I learned that the first night that they were there after seeing me, my mom, like, stayed up and cried the whole night. She was so, like, this early upset at seeing me be this shell of myself. And, I mean, I was smiling because they were there. I couldn't cry. I couldn't feel sad about my experience. I was still fully in denial in the like, this is just what I'm doing. Safety is different here. I'm existing. I'm I'm, I'm functioning. I'm saving the turtles, right? I'm doing it.
0: And wow. okay, so they drive away to their hotel and spend the night and then, you know, your mom's not, not, not doing well. You don't really know what's going on. And okay. So what's the chain of events that happens within the next few days?
1: So she comes, they come back the next day. um, And they basically tell the executive director that they're going to take me away for a week for the rest of their stay. They're like, we're not going to visit her here. She's going to come with us. And, and we're going to go off. And do our own family thing, have a family trip. Uh, That's how they. That's how they phrase it to me as well. And then they get me back to the hotel, and they're like, "We all need to call Northeastern right now, and and tell them what's tell them what your situation is, and see what they want to do about it." Because they were trying not to. They were again trying to trying to be careful with me. I was clearly like in a psychotic state of of existing. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't thinking logically in any way, and like psychotic state implies that I was like, you know, like I don't, I don't know. Psychotic state probably isn't the right way to put it. No, I was it, just it, completely it like, like I was completely numb to everything. Yeah,
0: no, I, I mean, um I mean, back to uh, as Viktor Frankl, i mentioned in his book. Because you've been in this state for a very long time, you don't even know what's going on. On top of that, you're cut off from civilization and real you know, human interaction, which I'm sure adds a whole nother angle to that. And you've been in this state and have had to survive for so long in these life-threatening situations. And, not, and in order to sort of save your own self and not realize how dangerous and how life-threatening your current life is, you've just kind of chosen to forget. And in forgetting, you became numb. And in becoming numb, you know, you don't understand or have a grip on reality. And as a result, you don't even know that you're suffering. And I'm guessing that's what was going, that's what was happening right now. I mean, what you had just said about the state you're in, I think that's, that's perfectly logical to explain what was going through your mind.
1: Yeah. And, you know, the, the more intense feelings I would have moments of realizing and the moments would be, like, I described the, the situation with the men looking for us. There was another moment that I was completely alone and hadn't eaten in days and walked down to do a turtle patrol and fell off the jungle path. Hit my head really hard and twisted my ankle and realized that nobody would have found me if I had died for days.
0: Oh, my God.
1: That, that was another moment that I allowed myself to kind of, or that I realized maybe what was happening to me. You know I was so weak that I fell off the path. It wasn't even like a oh, I just misstepped it was a like I was falling asleep on the way down while I was walking, and my body was so weak that I just fell over and rolled down into the jungle for a bit and hit my head on this big rock and laid there, not worrying about what's in the in the brush or you know all the spiders that you can see at night or whatever. And, and just thinking like, if that had been it for me, I don't think anybody it. comes for another three days.
0: Yeah. And that's assuming that they get the search party in that time. Look for you.
1: And nobody's calling me every day. Nobody's checking in on me. every. Nobody's seeing me every day to verify that I'm even alive.
0: Really? Oh. I mean, from what you say, there were, I can't even begin to think of how many times it could have been the end. Let's say a pack oh of God. dogs Every was extra night with hungry. The dogs. Yeah, the dogs. Every night with the dogs. The crocodiles, which you just forgot to <laughs> mention. Yeah, the crocodiles. All I didn't have even taken, worry about that much. All it would have yeah. taken was one. You, I mean, the fact that you're not even worrying about that. You just casually say hi to the you know, two eyes you see glistening against your, your weak ass, one foot in front of you flashlight.
1: And you know what it was in my mind? It was that- like, like, against all the other obstacles that I was... All the other life-threatening situations, that was the best option to die.
0: What? they, the they
1: Yeah, like, they they rip you apart, you bleed out pretty quickly, or, like, they'll eat you or whatever. But it's going to take them a lot faster, or they're going to be able to do it a lot faster than the dogs would. And it's going to be a nicer death than getting killed by a human after being, like, brutally raped or sold or something, you know? So I wasn't even... I think that was genuinely a thought I had early on of like, oh, fuck, I'm so afraid of these like giant reptiles. And I was like, honestly, being eaten by a dinosaur, like not even that bad of a way to die.
0: Wow. The fact that you're saying that. Wow. Okay. So it's a, so at this point, you're taken by your parents and they bring mm-hmm. you into their hotel room. And they're like, we're going to call Northeastern and we're going to keep that. We're going to keep her for a week. What happens now? So she's on the phone with Northeastern, and they see you in, in this decrepit state. What happens?
1: It, it wasn't a video call at that point. Um, um, I think we tried to call and we couldn't get a hold of somebody directly. You know, you don't, you're not sure what, like, who do we call about this, right? We call the Office of Global Experiences, <laughs> trying to I'm trying to say something about it, and they're like, "Oh yeah, we'll wait until we get in contact with your co-op advisor tomorrow," and my mom's sends with my help an email describing my situation and immediately the next morning like 7 a.m boston time hear back from uh from my co-advisor with a bunch of other people cc'd on the email like higher ups I think highest up of global experience office was in there northeastern safety risk and management team was in there they assigned me you know they, they basically were like are you serious that this is happening because to describe it out of the blue is just kind of it's it's like fantasy sounding almost it's like wow this is like the plot line of a movie it is not an actual situation that's that's happening right now and to their credit they took it pretty seriously immediately but it definitely took like a 48 hours for them to be like oh no every single thing you said is correct and actually it's probably worse than you're telling us and the people are lying about the conditions there. So you're clearly in a fraudulent organization. Something needs to happen. Your parents are, I mean, my mom emailed them on her own with, I think the words like, we fear for her life. Like we fear for her life, even looking from the outside at the situation, just just having arrived here and looked at it.
0: Wow. Okay, so everyone CC, they verify, what happens next?
1: I stay with my parents in a delirium of eating everything that I possibly can for a week. (laughs) (laughs) And and then on the one of the last days that they're there, we take this bioluminescent tour of Tortuga Island, which is Turtle Island and fun little national park thing. And uh, the tour guide asks me if I work where I work. And I say, as a response, thinking, oh, maybe I met him in my delirious, sleep deprived state and don't remember at some point. I say, oh, uh, yeah, I do. I'm so sorry that I don't remember you. Like, what's what's your name? You know, were were you there at some point? And he tells me, uh, he goes, no, but you shouldn't, you shouldn't be there. And I'm like, oh, fuck, you know, because I don't know (laughs) this guy. I don't know this guy. So at this point, I can't trust anything that he's saying either. Mm -hmm.
0: And, you know, know, what,
1: what is his motive for telling me any of this? And how does he know who I am? He goes, no, we haven't met, but you shouldn't be there. And I'm like, oh, like, how did you know that I work there? And he goes, no, I recognize you from your picture and shows me a picture of myself in a Facebook group and i'm like oh fuck because it's not just like a picture it's not it's not any of my social media pictures all my social media is public it could have easily been that if it was like you know oh my profile this or that she's working at this place and they posted it online it's a picture of me walking alone on that beach and i'm like oh my god someone took this picture of me
0: oh my god
1: and i don't know this man
0: oh my god
1: and i i have no protection and my bungalow, the place that I sleep at night, does not lock. The place that I sleep when I sleep doesn't even lock. Oh, my God. And um, Everybody knows where I live, apparently, because this man is a f- fucking four-hour drive from the place that I'm staying and pulls up a picture of me having never met me.
0: Oh, my God.
1: And so I'm panicking, right? Because I'm like, oh, and are, are you with your
0: parents at this time? Like you're, you're what the he pulled me tour. aside.
1: They're, they're like, they're like swimming or something. Yeah, and I'm like sitting. um, you know what it was. They were swimming, and I was chowing down on the watermelon that he brought for the trip. <laughs> I was like inhaling as much food as I possibly could because mm-hmm. I was, I was also a little bit delusional about like, um, I don't know. Maybe I'll have to stay here. Like maybe yeah. Northeastern can't get me out. Yeah, I don't know what I was thinking. I well, I clearly wasn't thinking logically. And then I'm like, why should I not be there? And then he proceeds to tell me that he used to do sea turtle conservation there with a group of locals and a group of scientists from the capital city a while ago on that same beach. Like I'm talking 10 years ago. And they had to stop because one night they witnessed a drug plane being loaded. And then the men saw them on this patrol and saw that they had witnessed, I'm talking a circle of cars with their headlights on to illuminate essentially a runway, a small plane lands. They watch it land. They watch it be loaded up. They're hiding. And then they watch it take off again. And then some man in one of those cars spots them and, uh, and, and doesn't like go over immediately. But like the next day, their whole camp is like burned and all the volunteers had been tied up and, and threatened at gunpoint. And the threat was like, Never come back to this area of land again to do this because this is not where you belong. Like this is not okay for you to be here.
0: Oh my god! Oh my god! I'm and just... a few
1: of the women and a few of the women on that had been raped as well in that um I... in that experience.
0: I, I, I honestly can't even believe what you're telling me because I've, I just I can't believe that. You know, I'm, I'm talking to someone where this has so directly, like, hit them. And, okay, so he shows you this photo. And, you know, after telling you this story about how he had can no longer work for this same organization because of how they just put everyone's lives at stake, what was the context of him showing you that photo on Facebook? Like, what page was it on?
1: It was, like, in a large group chat like a large like messenger with like 50 people and he and I was like oh fuck like I know it's a dangerous area I think I literally said to him like yeah I know it's a dangerous area we see people all the time running drugs and he goes no you don't understand now the local people who have been watching you do these patrols on the beach know that you're not just another volunteer they know that your parents had enough money to a visit you and b stay at a really nice hotel while you were here and so now when you leave, as soon as as soon as you are alone again in that area, they will they will find you and they will kidnap you. And that's what he told me directly. He said that there were there that they were talking about it already.
0: Wow. Wow. And and so
1: now what happens is we go back to Northeastern, right? we have now we have a new email to draft (laughs) and we're like hey guess what besties it got way worse really quickly like immediately now there's like oh yeah i'm having all these life-threatening situations right but now there's like oh i'm a direct target of a very 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 clear plot to kidnap me and for ransom money and so what do we do you know Mm -hmm. and at that point uh they send my my live location from my phone to the U.S. consulate to Northeastern's risk and safety management team. I'm assigned the head of Northeastern's risk and safety management team as like my point of contact. He's calling me every hour. They have my live location. They have pictures of each of the pages in my passport. They have literally a cork board of me. A situation board, bro. I was a situation board. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable, right? <laughs> yeah. My God. And they booked me a flight. And they arrange transportation for me. To, to leave. Um, and it, unfortunately, was going to be after my parents had to leave. Mm-hmm. Because my parents' flight. Uh, like I said, I found all this out on their last day there.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So my parents fly out, uh, of San Jose and I'm in San Jose with them. They took me back to San Jose with them. And the problem is all my shits at this other place. So I got to go get it and then leave. And I get my own transportation to go there to, and where? Northeastern had a, to, to the go hotel? back to the place that I had been, not the, the hotel. I didn't, the place that I had been and get all my stuff from the bungalow. I, I was in charge of arranging my transportation there because everybody had my locations. And then Northeastern had arranged transportation for me to leave there.
0: Mm-hmm. And, how, and many, how many days after your parents had left, did they had uh, arranged transportation for you to leave?
1: Maximum two. It's, maximum it's two a days. whirlwind. And I believe it was like 36 hours after my parents' flight left that that my flight was supposed to be leaving.
0: Mm-hmm. okay
1: um somewhere somewhere in that timeline but basically i i get transported back and have one of the one of what i consider the closer calls of my life um in the taxi from the second airport on the peninsula there is i, I get out of the plane and there's a guy with you know my name on the sign holding a little piece of paper with my name and i get in that taxi um and and he there's like two roads on this whole fucking peninsula right Mm -hmm. and he and he takes the wrong road Mm -hmm. and i'm and i'm telling him oh you're going the wrong way you're going the wrong way Mm -hmm. and my phone stops having service
0: oh my god
1: so now they don't see my now nobody knows where i am and i know he's going the wrong direction and i'm telling him you're going the wrong way you're going the wrong way and he's only speaking Spanish to me really quickly.
0: Oh my God.
1: And because I wasn't always around people, because there wasn't consistent people there, consistent volunteers, anything, I had barely learned any Spanish. And also, you know, I'm not sleeping. I'm not taking in information. So he's speaking really quick Spanish to me and he's not turning around. And I'm, I'm you know, yelling like wrong way. And, I, and I'm trying to get out the door. Mm-hmm. And the door is locked and I can't unlock it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And he pulls over and another car comes and pulls over as well. And they and both drivers get out of the car. And I'm like, oh, I'm fucked, right? Like I'm fucked. I'm so fucked. I'm absolutely dead right now. I'm I'm this is it. I'm getting kidnapped. I'm looking around at me, I'm like, do I run into the jungle? Do I do I do I can't call anybody nobody knows where I am there's like a span of so much space like actual land space that I could be in on this peninsula I you know I I have no weapon on me still I can't I can't do anything I'm completely helpless and luckily for me it wasn't anything nefarious and the drivers just switched cars because one taxi happened to be going in the direction of that guy's house. Oh, (sighs) and I get there and I get my shit and I have one overnight
0: Mm
1: -hmm. and I'm advised by Northeastern to not sleep in the place that I had been sleeping. And I literally take my suitcases and sleep in the jungle. And I don't sleep, you know, you're not sleeping.
0: Wait, you, you stayed in the bungalow. You didn't go back after getting your stuff. You, you slept.
1: Their taxi couldn't get to me that day. Then the one that they had arranged to get me out because of the tides and the roads.
0: Mm -hmm. So So, by the
1: time I get there, because my taxi took way too long to get there because he took the wrong direction. mm -hmm. And by the, you know, also when I get back into service. I have like a million missed calls and like everybody's fucking so worried about it. And because obviously, and I get there like way later and they're like, we can't, we can't get to you now. And so it's going to have to be tomorrow. And I mean, I was literally told point blank by Northeastern Risk and Safety Management to find somewhere in the jungle with cell service and hide out.
0: Oh my God.
1: And so I did. And then as soon as the taxi could get to me the next morning, it got to me and they took me back to San Jose and I got on a plane and then I was in Boston.
0: (sighs) I still can't get over that you slept on the fucking jungle floor. That was considered the safest plan. (laughs) With the bugs and the snakes and the rabid dogs and the crocodiles and God knows what other poachers. That was the safest plan. Oh
1: yeah, and I had seen a million scorpions the whole trip. You know, oh Not like, scorpions, we're bugs, oh. but there are a bunch of scorpions everywhere.
0: Yeah, I'm gonna guess the bugs aren't little. You know, aren't little. You know, fruit flies. No, nah. no, they're real size. No, they're full bugs. They're real bugs. Wow, full bugs. <laughs> um, <laughs> wow. There's I, uh, no
1: way to describe the feeling. Of nearly losing your life. And then the next night, sleeping off of ComAv, like nothing happened.
0: My God. So, okay. So you've finally been through this ordeal, and your parents come and they realize the state you're in, which you don't even realize, right? And then Northeastern really steps it up they realized, oh, she could die. And, you know, after two days of just kind of not really realizing where you're going to sleep, transportation not working out the way it should, you're finally in Boston and you're asleep and you're safe. But I'm sure you don't feel that way. When did you realize, oh, wow, what happened to me really was terrible. And then, yeah, like, just what was how did it feel afterwards after finally being in boston
1: it was like a slow realization over the course of the next four months you know i still i still process details now and then of of what i went through um and unfortunately the timing for me also was really crappy i mean i got back to boston and then i was there for two weeks and then we all got evicted for COVID. So then I end up going back to my hometown in South Dakota, isolated again from all my friends and from everybody that I had considered my support network for the first two years of college. And I'm now living in my hometown that I have not lived in or been in for more than a week in two years, over two years at that point. Because I moved out the summer before I graduated. I moved and lived with my aunt in Maryland. So everything changed really quickly. Um, I, I absolutely did not realize what I had gone through in any way until at least a month and a half, two months in after, Mm. after returning, because what happened was I just also had nobody to walk me through the refeeding process after starvation. And so I did
0: completely. So
1: after you, yeah, after you starve, there are things that you should eat in specific quantities. And there's there's a way to help your body recover, uh, and you should you know be given a nutritionist. And it's like it's like one of those shows, right? Like Survivor or like Naked <laughs> and Afraid. Like yeah. you come back and you need somebody to help you gain weight in a healthy way, help you not starve anymore, and walk you through and explain to you the urges that you might have for eating. I showed up in Boston and laid in bed and cried for about, for those, pretty much those entire two weeks and just ate every single food that I could eat that was at all remotely what I had craved during my time there. I'm talking like sit down and eat a sleeve of cookies. I was not eating nutritional (laughs) foods. I was not eating foods that were high in the caloric value that I needed. I was not eating foods that in the right way. I was not eating the right amounts of things. I was not taught how to do any of that. And that's something that affects me to this day. When people go through an eating disorder, it's uh, it's a similar comeback process if it's really severe. So it can be months that you go through where you gain weight, gain weight, gain weight again, and then you weigh overshoot what your typical body value will be or what your body likes to be at, because it's preparing for another starvation event.
0: Mm. I mean, actually, I um, I actually wanted to talk about this and I I know you did too. So there is this whole event, but then you also wanted to talk about the uh, sort of long term uh, mental health problems that have come across because of this, because you feel that in some way others could relate. I don't know how they could relate necessarily with what you've gone through, but but okay. You talked to me about how you had PTSD, and there was a time until you were diagnosed because of that. How long after were you diagnosed with that specifically?
1: So I got back in March, early March, March Mm fifth or something around there, and got diagnosed with formally with severe PTSD in November. Mm -hmm. It was the entire summer and then into the fall. Uh, and, And I was only diagnosed because essentially the people who were closest to me at the time basically had an intervention and recognized very intense symptoms of PTSD that I was experiencing. We're not talking like regular trauma response. You go through trauma, you're gonna have some extent of nightmares, you're gonna have some extent of flashbacks, you're gonna have some extent of anxiety and depression. And there's a lot of other things that come along with that that aren't necessarily PTSD symptoms. And I want to make that very clear because PTSD is now thrown around in conversations like, oh, I have PTSD from that test or I have PTSD from that one time that I fell off a bike and now I can't ride a bike and all this stuff. Right. And that's, that's fine. Like, I'm not against, you know, using it casually like that, but it does need to be when, when I talk about it with a new person, sometimes there's a real barrier to recognition of the severity and the difference of symptoms of PTSD from symptoms of regular depression or anxiety, not to say regular in like that, you know, in a, in a limiting way, but of um of maybe a more common or more relatable um mental illness or or struggle that people feel kind of regularly so i finally got diagnosed when i felt severe paranoia all the time so paranoia assuming of what? paranoia assuming Everybody around me did not have my best intentions in mind or meant poorly for me or were using me because I had convinced myself and listened to the people who told me that safety was different. And now here I am finally trying to come to terms with how bad it was that I went through and a huge coming to terms part of that was realizing that all these people along the way had lied to me. And did not have my best intentions in mind. And so I was looking for those and being so paranoid about friends that I had been, people I had been friends with for years. Uh, they don't have my best intentions in mind. They they want to hurt me all the time. Or they are just friends with me because of this or that. Or just just really scary feelings of like everybody in this world is against me
0: kind of thing. I mean, I can understand why. Wow. Okay. So this is when you realize that you should get diagnosed for PTSD. Um, Anything, are there any other disorders or anything else that you've faced as a result of this experience?
1: I had clinical OCD before I went. I've, I've had that my life. Um, but PTSD and OCD interact in really interesting ways. Uh, a lot of the medications that are meant to help PTSD uh, also are meant to help OCD and people will get prescribed medications for either or kind of thing. They really have a lot of, a lot of overlapping symptoms. So it would be things like really intense need to control a situation or to control my environment. My environmental control is especially a symptom of PTSD, but it is a symptom that I had before a bit with my OCD that's just way amplified now. Like, my room is my room, and nobody gets to come into my space if I don't want them to. And, you know, you can feel like that a little bit. But then if somebody does, you're not, you're, you're like mad at them, or, you know, you're upset at them. If somebody does for me in the wrong way, it's like, it feels like a life ending event at times or it did before I was medicated and diagnosed. It felt like this person has now absolutely broken my trust. And also, you know, I had a I have a, a hard time trusting people the same way
0: even to today.
1: Even today. I mean, it's 2 years later and I just went on a trip to uh to the Bahamas for spring break. My second time out of the country after this event, also a tropical location, also a coastal location, a lot of visceral reminders that were possible. And I felt, I felt ready and I, uh, and I explained my story. It came up a little bit here and there. And the girl that didn't know about it asked me if I would want to talk about it. And so I did. And then the next day, she did something which you can imagine, having just heard this story, is extremely triggering for me, which was get super drunk and not keep her phone location updating, wander off into an area with no service at like 3 a.m. alone, right? You could see how that like maybe would remind me of
0: yeah, so <laughs> some she of the did things. This.
1: She did this. And I'm like freaking out looking for her at 3 a.m., like freaking out. Not a normal, oh my God, I'm worried for my friend reaction. A, she got kidnapped for sure reaction, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And coming from somebody, coming from anybody who, anybody else, the immediate brain going to she got kidnapped is not a logical mechanism. Coming from me, (laughs) it's logical, right? Like in my brain, that is exactly what happened. And, or it's what's going to happen if we don't find her immediately. And then after this, she didn't understand what she had done wrong and didn't want to apologize or take responsibility for her actions. But in in a different way, you know, even if you don't think you did anything wrong on your end, part of supporting a friend or family member with PTSD is knowing that their reactions aren't going to be logical to things that you think are smaller mm-hmm. because they feel so much different for somebody. And so that's the kind of thing where like, I, it took a lot for me to trust her with my story at all and then in less than 24 hours later she turns around and gives me the biggest PTSD episode I've had since getting diagnosed and put on meds. It's hard to trust
0: anybody. Wow. Yeah. Um do you think that this is something that through medication and I'm not sure if you're in therapy but do you think this mm-hmm. is you are? Do you think that this is something that will ever Truly, go away, or is this something that you'll just have to live with? I
1: would definitely just have to live with. Like when I get really sad about it now, the part that makes me feel sad is I mourn for pieces of myself that I lost through the experience.
0: Like what? What did you lose that you won't get back now?
1: I lost a part of myself that was carefree. That I, lo- I lost the part of myself that believes the best in people. Um, I lost the part of myself that believes that conservation work is absolutely necessary. And that one's a tough one. In a lot of cases, ethically, conservation work isn't the best thing. You know, who was I? Some privileged person who had never experienced hunger or poverty to be in that country taking the people's only way of making money and feeding their children away from them that's Mm -hmm. something I struggle with still I lost a lot of my uh a lot of my desire to see the world unfortunately you know I think that even just to travel for a girl's trip to the Bahamas to a resort for a week took so much out of me and was so difficult mentally when I thought it would be a break. I've got to travel in a bigger group that unfortunately has, you know, or has to have at least right now for me, men in it so that I feel more naturally like protected or safer or has more of a family element. I don't think I can travel just in a group with with younger women abroad, because I was just in situations. In the worst of the situations, it was when I was with groups of only young women.
0: Wow. I mean that that sounds awful. Um, and uh, I don't yeah, laugh as much anymore. Would you say you're and not this- as happy
1: that's so so multifaceted and difficult to answer because like in reality probably not <laughs> <laughs> but um uh, you know I'm a different person and a lot of the things that I needed to learn make me a better person even if that's hard and even if even that's hard to admit and. I completely believe that I should not have gone through this and that, you know, obviously I'm not one of those, like, I, I, hate the whole, Oh, your trauma makes you who you are without. I hate, I just hate hearing that from people. Cause I'm like, you, you didn't go through it, though, So you can't tell me shit. You know, you were not hiding on the floor of the jungle from men with guns for one night or two nights a week, every weekend. For a month and a half, you did not starve. So don't tell me that my trauma made me who I am. Even if that's true, I don't want to hear it from anybody else. <laughs> you know, i I am probably not as happy as I was. But happiness is super relative, and I think that what I have now is a more realistic understanding of the world, a more realistic understanding of who I am as a person, uh, and what's good for me. You know, I think like deep desire to help the world, regardless of what that took for me was not healthy. And a lot of conservationists go through this in some sort of way. You realize that you realistically can't give up your life for saving the world because the world's not going to be saved like that. It's not that easy. And then you've just given up your life. So what's the point kind of thing. But I will say if you measure happiness in terms of laughter it's a lot harder for me to laugh now which is really really sad for me I love laughing and I actually have a short uh short journal entry that I want to read or a piece of a journal entry that I want to read from the time that I was there when I recognized this going away Uh, I say I'm really disappointed at how little I laugh here As soon as I find a source of laughter, it seems to be a volunteer that's just leaving. I crave laughter more than air conditioning. In the middle of the afternoon, as I try to desperately chase and hold on to some sort of sleep, I dream not about ice cream or a burger or the snow. I dream about sitting in a bed or standing outside or cooking and wherever I am laughing so hard that I cannot continue what I was doing. Well, the howler monkeys have started to bark as the sun begins to set. And as always, I feel I cannot possibly think about anything except the old me. Let me go now and resume chasing sleep in my ninety-six degree bungalow and hoping that the old me will visit me in my dreams.
0: Wow, that is um I mean again, just I don't really have anything to say because I I I, I just can't believe that Something like this could happen to someone, you know, so close to, you know, so close to where I am. Um, I mean, a, a story as visceral as this. I can't even begin to, you know, imagine like on the surface when we were first talking, you know, it it sounded Oh my God, you know, it sounded so badass. Oh, you know, I'm like swimming with crocodiles and I'm dodging, you know, uh, do- like feral dogs and I'm saving the world and I'm in the jungle and I'm living off the land. Da, da, da. But then, you know, you talk more, you talk more about what happened and the dangers and then the effects of just literally living life as if it's fight or flight. You know, not having the ability to, you know, as you said, be carefree. Some for someone like me, I think that one of the best things about me is my carefree nature. And as you said, you know, like, I mean, for me, like, I have that irrationality that all the people are all good because I'm privileged enough to not have been hurt and burned enough by others. And that is something that's been taken away from you.
1: Yeah. And I, I mourn that. No.
0: I mean, what is, um, Well, and you talked about how conservation has sort of discouraged you, but from what I hear, you're still going to be continuing on that journey and, you know, you're working well to get a job now so that in a few years you can go to grad school. How do you keep going on? Because it seems like you still are.
1: Yeah. I'm a lot wiser about the opportunities that I choose now and a lot, a lot more realistic about the impact that I can make on the world in my time here. I have an environmental policy minor, so, you know, I'm not against moving into some sort of legislative writing in the future. Um, And this is kind of the first big step into maybe talking about my story more often in in bigger ways and more impactful ways. Uh, I know a few other people who have not gone through something similar, but who have also not had the experience that conservation agencies overseas have, have portrayed, you know, have not felt good coming out of those. And it's a bigger conversation of where our priorities are in life. My priority going in was save the sea turtles over, let the local people poach for the money that they need to feed their families. And coming out of that, my priorities are not the same in that situation. You know, I don't think that the work that they're doing there with the turtles needs to be done there in that way. There's nobody that's actually doing it in a meaningful way that would save and help the turtles in all reality. But what I'm doing now and moving forward with doing is parts of conservation that feel personally fulfilling. I've found them. uh, I, during my dolphin research co-op got the very profound opportunity to help disentangle, a, an individual juvenile dolphin. And I have that fin tattooed on me with the line that was still on that dolphin. And then in the wow. following weeks, we could watch that dolphin return to, uh, to normal behavior. So saving a Marine mammal like that, um, definitely is just what i want to do with my life i'm trying to pursue uh pursue a career that gets me to a higher position of disentanglement and and strandings work so saving individuals will help me overall feel better about myself and feel better about doing research in that capacity Mm
0: -hmm. i love that i love that um well uh before we go um I would just like to hear from you is if there's anything you'd like to say that we haven't talked about or any advice you'd like to give for future marine biologists or for people who'd like to practice some conservation abroad, literally anything you want, what do you want to say?
1: Never go anywhere unless you've talked to multiple people who had been there for the amount of time that you're going to be there. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's number one. Overall. I would say something we didn't touch on as much that that applies to I know a lot of people is a feeling of isolation. Whatever gets you to that feeling, you know, in my situation, it was actual physical
0: (laughs) isolation. Isolation, yeah.
1: But a lot of us in this age get so overwhelmed with the amount of people that we see or talk to or could talk to that we self-isolate. Sometimes. And this mm-hmm. is a feeling that that I feel now, even um, that I know a lot of people can relate to. And all it takes in those moments for you to break that barrier of isolation is finding one small way that you can trust one person. I, you know, had moments of clarity while I was there. Where I really thought that ending my own life would be better than dying at the hands of anything else there. And I had one person that I could call, and I called him once, and he's been my best friend since before orientation. He was the first person I met um, before I went to Northeastern. His name's Abby. I think Mm -hmm. you met him actually.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, no, Abby.
1: But you need to just find one person to trust in the moments that you feel isolated regardless of how scary trusting that one person is make it a smaller thing that you tell them I don't think I told them I was feeling suicidal I think I literally was sitting under a palm tree with a razor in my hand and I didn't tell him I was feeling suicidal I just told him about the dogs and it was one thing that was off just to me in that moment and, and he could say something comforting to me or not. I don't know that anything could have been comforting to me at the moment, but just not being alone in one small thing can make you and help you feel less alone in everything.
0: Wow. Um, I think that's some advice as good as any. Uh, well, Josie, thank you so much for telling us your story. I mean, I brought you on here because I wanted well, one after hearing what you had gone through to hear it myself, but then to give it a platform. And I'm sure that now you can, whenever people ask about what you went through, simply just send them this. And yeah, just kind <laughs> of a let lot them of my know, work for me. <laughs> yeah, it's like, hey, you know what you want to know about me? Here's a two-hour podcast. Just just kind of listen to it and see what I went through. Um. Wow. Well, uh, I just want to say. Uh, thank you so much for being on this podcast, being on the show.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me. It was was a very constructive way to tell my story. I really appreciate anybody who takes the time to listen about what I went through. And I hope that even in the unrelatable moments, there's something that you can take away from it that makes uh, any sort of impact on your life.
0: Yeah, well, with that, guys, take care. And uh, I'll see you next time.